Welcome to the teaching ministry of Magnolia's First. To learn more, visit m1bc.org. Well, as I said last week, this series is a little bit different. There's no intro video. There's uh, no real graphics or whatever, and I can't get my iPad to work. There we go. It's just kind of an unplugged series that I want to share with you from my heart about something that I believe deeply in and love with every fiber of my being, and that's the New Testament church, and in particular, this New Testament church uh, that we have spent three-plus decades uh, worshiping and studying and uh, seeing the Lord at work uh, here. Uh, Some of you would know the name Rick Warren. Uh, Rick pastors the Saddleback Church uh, in Southern California. It began right after he graduated from Southwestern Seminary, moved out there, and the church started in their apartment. Uh, Now it is the largest Southern Baptist church in the world and literally has uh, global outreach. And uh, Rick shared a story in his book, The Purpose Driven Church, uh, about an experience from early in his ministry. And I want to share this with you. So, So listen, these are his words. He said, while I was a seminary student in Texas, I once agreed to help some leaders of a large church evaluate their total church program. Their church had been a strong, vibrant witness for Christ in the past, and it had a historic reputation. I was a little intimidated as I drove up to the massive red brick structure for my first experience at church consulting. The wall of the conference room was filled with portraits of the men who had pastored the church in the past 100 years. This was a church with a history. As we sat down for our first meeting, I asked the group of leaders gathered, how do you feel about your church? Most of the comments expressed a quiet sense of satisfaction. One man summed it up by saying, we have a sound church. But as I probed deeper, I discovered that the church was sound asleep. (laughs) While the church was theologically sound, Nothing of spiritual significance was taking place there. The buildings were all paid for, and the church leaders had become lazy and lethargic. They were, as the Old Testament prophet Amos would have said, at ease in Zion. And their at ease disease was slowly killing their church. Since they hired me to be their doctor, I gave them a simple prescription, rediscover your purpose, rediscover your purpose. And stories like that church could be told about thousands of churches across America that have lost their sense of purpose. And that's exactly what this series is about. M1 vision, as we are looking again at our mission statement, our statement of purpose as a church, our statement that expresses why we exist. Our mission statement is not a slogan. It's not a catchphrase. It is a, a statement that defines and clarifies the call of God upon us as a New Testament church. 
what we are to do, what we're to be about, what our focus, what our vision is to be. And so we're looking at our mission statement one bite at a time. So here's our mission statement just in case you've never heard it before. Magnolia's First Baptist Church exists, and that's our key word today. Magnolia's First Baptist Church exists to engage every generation to become Christ followers. Our mission is different than and greater than any secular organization or even a humanitarian organization. It's different than the Red Cross. It's different than Goodwill Industries or any other humanitarian uh, organization. They do good work. They help people, and that's good. Anytime you help people, that's good. But the difference is our mission has an eternal dimension. It's not just dealing with people's lives and their hurts that they experience day by day that people can help with. No, we're talking about that and so much more. We're talking about people's eternal destiny, where they spend their forever. And our mission statement clarifies why we are here. And so I want to to sum up what we're going to look at today in one sentence, our big idea for today. God put us on earth for an eternal purpose, an eternal purpose. Jesus made that clear to his disciples, and he made it clear to us in what we today commonly refer to as the Great Commission. You'll find it in Matthew chapter 28. If you're following along in your own Bibles, this is the first passage that we'll look at. The Great Commission, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. The resurrected Jesus is meeting with his disciples just prior to his ascension back to heaven, and he leaves them with a commission that they were to carry out as they established the early church, and we are still to be carrying out as his church today. Matthew 28, beginning with verse 18. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, as we look at this familiar passage of Scripture, and if you grew up in the church, you know the Great Commission. I want us to take a fresh look at it because within the Great Commission are some imperatives, some things we are to do. I feel like I'm going up and down. Does that sound that way? I'm going to try to get this stable. And All right. There are some imperatives there, some things that we are to do. And so I want us to look with sharp focus at four imperatives that we find in the Great Commission. The first is this. Jesus said, go and make disciples. Make disciples. 
We see this in the book of Acts. If you're familiar with the book of Acts, it was written by Luke. It is the history of the early church. It gives us the account of the very first churches that were established, our spiritual forefathers, if you will. And so let's look at Acts 16, beginning with verse 9. We find the Apostle Paul on his second of three missionary journeys. And Acts 16, verse 9, Paul has an incredible experience with the Lord. Luke says, that night Paul had a vision. A man from Macedonia in northern Greece was standing there pleading with him, come over to Macedonia and help us. So we decided to leave for Macedonia at once, having concluded that God was calling us to preach the good news there. I have to confess there are times that I wish God would speak to me in a dream or a vision. Uh, Judy saying that you had seen visions. I don't know if you really have or not. I, I never have. I, I think it would scare me stupid if, you know, if, if I heard an audible voice. Now, God can still do that, and maybe some of you have had that experience. I never have, but Paul did. And so it was crystal clear what God was calling them to do, to go to Macedonia and preach the gospel. Now, the reality is we may not have a vision. We may not hear an audible voice, but he's already spoken to us in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. It's clear what we are to do. And literally, if you go back to that passage and you go back to the the original Greek, it literally means as you are going, make disciples. It doesn't mean just go to a particular place like Paul did here as God called him to a specific geographic location, but as you are going through life, as you are making your way through daily life, we are to be involved in making disciples. Well, Paul received that clear call to Macedonia, and he responded, verse 11, we boarded a boat at Troas and sailed straight across to the island of Samothrace, and the next day we landed at Neapolis. From there, we reached Philippi, a major city of that district of Macedonia and a Roman colony, and we stayed there several days. Now, Paul was not on a cruise ship getting off at a port to go zip on a zip line, all right? He was, he was there on a mission. He was there not as a tourist. He was there as a missionary to go and engage the people with the gospel, people that did not know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And that's exactly what they did. Let's see how, verse 13. On the Sabbath, we went a little way outside the city to a riverbank where we thought people would be meeting for prayer. And we sat down to speak with some women who had gathered there. One of them was Lydia from Thyatira, a merchant of expensive purple cloth who worshiped God. As she listened to us, the Lord opened her heart and she accepted what Paul was saying. They talked with her and those other women, and God used their words, but their words were not what brought Lydia to faith. 
It says, look again, the Lord opened her heart. Now, sometimes we as Christ followers are fearful to witness. We think, I'm not very eloquent. I I don't know what to say. I I don't know how to express it. Listen, God uses our words, but he doesn't need our words. Only the Lord can open somebody's heart. And if God doesn't open their heart, it doesn't matter how eloquent you are or intelligent you are. It doesn't matter if, if you're a masterful orator. If God doesn't open the heart, then the gospel will not penetrate. But if God opens the heart, you can stumble and bumble around and just speak from the heart the best you know how and make a mess of it, and people get saved. Because God opens a heart if we will make ourselves available to share the gospel. And so, she accepted what Paul was saying. In other words, she trusted in Jesus Christ. She, she as we say around here at Magnolia's First, she stepped across the line of faith to trust in Jesus as her Savior. And look what happened next, verse 15. She and her household were baptized, and she asked us to be her guests. If you agree that I'm a true believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my home. And she urged us until we agreed. Now, don't miss this. Notice the first thing that she and her family did when they became Christ followers. It says, she and her family were baptized. And so that leads us to our second imperative. The Great Commission says that we are to baptize new Christ followers. It has been a part of the Christian faith since the very beginning. Go with me further back in Acts to Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, we find the Apostle Peter's great sermon on the day of Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit used that man who you remember had failed Jesus so badly. You remember that? He, he, he was the one who had denied Jesus at the most important moment, and yet he was the one that God forgave and restored and used to preach that great sermon on the day of Pentecost. Go with me and just envision this scene. Here's the end of his sermon, verse 38 of Acts 2. Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you, to your children, and to those far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. Then Peter continued preaching for a long time much longer than I'll preach today. Strongly urging all of his listeners, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Now, look at what happened, verse 41. Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day about 3,000 in all. Wouldn't you have loved to have been at that service? They were dunking people everywhere, baptizing 3,000 people in a single day. The point is this, baptism is important. It's important. 
Now, there are some groups, some denominations, and I'm not throwing theological stones at anybody, some who believe that baptism is essential to salvation, that unless you're baptized, you can't be saved. We don't believe the Scripture teaches that, but I understand why they might draw that conclusion because in the New Testament, they never divide conversion and baptism. It's never like, okay, you become converted, you step across the line of faith, you become a Christ follower, and then maybe sooner or later you'll finally get around to being baptized. It never presents it that way. It's two sides of the same coin. It's the expected obedience. It's the initial public testimony of a new Christ follower to say, I am now a follower of Jesus Christ, and I want everybody in my world to know it. I am not ashamed of the gospel. That's what baptism is. It doesn't save you. It says to the world, you have been saved. And so baptism is important. Now, let me just give you a quick synopsis about what our church believes about baptism. We do not believe that you have to be baptized in our church for your baptism to be valid. We don't even believe, as some Baptist churches have in the past, that you have to be baptized in a Baptist church for it to be biblically valid. I don't know where we got that in our history, but it's just what we do believe is that you have to be baptized according to the pattern of Scripture. Denomination's not the issue. The Bible's the issue. Are you with me? So you have to be baptized according to the pattern of the New Testament. What does that mean? Two things. First of all, by immersion. And again, I'm not throwing theological rocks at those who sprinkle, but the pattern in the New Testament is immersion. It says when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, Jesus came up out of the water. That's not sprinkling, folks. That's being in the water. And immersion is important because baptism symbolizes, pictures, portrays two different realities. The first reality is the, the death and burial of Jesus Christ. When the new Christ follower is taken under the water, they're immersed, it pictures the death and burial of Jesus Christ. Because without the death of Jesus, without the blood of Jesus that we sang about earlier, there is no conversion. There is no salvation. So it pictures the death and burial of Jesus Christ. And then when the the candidate comes up out of the water, we know what that represents, don't we? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And with no resurrection, there is no Christian faith. So it's important. It pictures something important, and then it pictures a second reality, a personal reality. When the person is baptized, when they are lowered under the water, it pictures the death of their old life of being an unforgiven sinner. That life is dead. It's not based on your performance. It's based on the blood of Jesus shed for you and the grace of God. And, and despite what some teach, you don't get saved and lose it and regain it and lose it again, and you never know if you're walking the top. No, no, no. It is not by our works that we are saved. It is by the death and burial of Jesus and his resurrection, his shed blood. So baptism pictures the, the burial of that old life of being an unforgiven sinner. When they come up out of the water, it pictures a new life as a forgiven child of God, as a Christ follower. So immersion is important. The second thing that is essential to New Testament baptism is when it takes place, 
and that is to be after you become a Christ follower. Uh, sometimes we have people come and they say, we, we want to be a, a member of your church. And we always ask first, do you know Jesus as your Savior? Is he your Lord and Master? Have you stepped across the line of faith? Secondly, have you been biblically baptized? Well, what does that mean? Well, have you been baptized by immersion after conversion? Oh, no, I was baptized as a baby. That's, that's good enough. No, it's not biblical. It has to be after. You, you can't testify of something that hasn't happened yet. Does that make sense? And so baptism must happen after a person steps across the line of faith and becomes a born-again child of God, a Christ follower. So baptism is important. I say all that, and I need to ask a question. Whether you're here today in the worship center or you're watching online, if you are a Christ follower, but you have never been biblically baptized in that way, you need to be. You need to be, not to be saved, but because you have been saved, to be obedient to the Lord and to testify of your conversion. And so if, if that's you, if I'm describing you, you've been born again, you've stepped across the line of faith, but you've not been biblically baptized, you can, you can enter into the process to to plan your baptism in one of several ways. First of all, you can go to our website, m1bc.org backslash baptism. And Pastor Seth, our discipleship pastor, has set up a, a page there that explains a lot about baptism and also has a place that you can fill out online and then a pastor will contact you and counsel with you and set up a date for your baptism. Or... At the end of this service, we offer a prayer and invitation time. And you can come and talk to one of our prayer partners and just simply say, I need to take the next step. That's what we ask people to do every week. If, if you need to take the next step, whatever that is, that's what you say when you come and talk with one of the prayer partners. And then they will talk with you, and you can tell them, I'm a Christ follower, I've never been biblically baptized, and they'll start that process. So baptism is important. It is the privilege and responsibility of this church to baptize new believers in Christ. And then the next Im imperative becomes our responsibility and privilege as well to teach Christ followers the Scripture, the Scripture. Go with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning with verse 14. The Apostle Paul is talking to Timothy, a young man he was discipling. And here's what he said about the importance of the Scriptures in growing in his faith. 2 Timothy 3, 14. Paul said, but you must remain faithful to the things you have been taught. You know they are true, for you know you can trust those who taught you. You have been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood, and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. Now, don't miss these next two verses. All Scripture is inspired by God and useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do 
what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Here's what we know. Scripture that is taught well to Christ followers who have receptive hearts, receptive minds, and receptive wills. Scripture will change people's lives. It, will cha- it is the Word of God. Here at Magnolia's First, we believe all Scripture is true. We believe those who want to want to tear out pages of Scripture and say, no, I don't like this. This doesn't fit with modern culture. And and just, you know, pick and choose cafeteria. Listen, it's not lubies, all right? It is all the Word of God, from Genesis all the way to maps, all right? It is all, no, Genesis to Revelation. That was a joke. They were supposed to laugh. Uh, It is all God's Word, and it is all true. And folks, it really doesn't matter what culture says. What matters is what the Word of God says. And we've got to do a continually better job in teaching the Word of God to every generation. To every generation. Because especially on the young, the pull of the culture is strong. It's strong. Teach the Word of God. Of God because it changes lives. Look at this. Here's what Paul said in Philippians 1, verses 9 through 11. He said, I pray that your love will overflow more and more and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. For I want you to understand what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ, for this will bring much glory and praise to God. I tell the teaching pastors who are part of our Sunday morning teaching team, pastors Milt and Daniel and Seth, and Jeff, who along with me will preach and teach on Sunday mornings. I've tried to impress on them two things that's important in our preaching. First of all, tell them what God wants them to know. Open the Word of God. Tell them what God wants them to know. And then the second part is just as important. Tell them what God wants them to do with what they know. Because the book of James says, if we are just hearers of the word and not doers of the word, we've missed the mark. The scripture changes people's lives. If scripture only fills our heads but doesn't change our lives, we've missed the mark. It is to change us and make us progressively more like Jesus. Well, one final imperative, and this one is is so important, the other three cannot be successful without it. Here it is. Rely on the Lord's presence and power. You remember in the Great Commission, Jesus said, I'll be with you always until the end of of the age. Very quickly, I want to take you to the city of Corinth in the first century. Paul was uh, writing to a divided church. 
There were some that were saying, oh, I'm following Paul. And others would say, no, I'm following Apollos, who was one of the teaching pastors of the church. And others were in in pseudo-self-righteousness saying, oh, I only follow Jesus. And there's all this division going on. And Paul wrote them three letters. We have two of them in the New Testament to try to straighten out this dysfunctional church. Here's what he said to them in 1 Corinthians 2, beginning with verse 1, about his approach to try to show them what was really important. He said, when I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters, I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom to tell you of God's secret plan. For I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling. And my message and my preaching were very plain. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. I did this so that you would not trust in human wisdom, but in the power of God. I recently heard about a pastor who said that when he was trying to shape and improve his teaching style, that he didn't watch other preachers who were effective. He watched stand-up comedians. He wanted to see the pace of their delivery and how they swayed the audience. And I heard that and I thought, that is tragic because it is not human skill. Uh, Can I just kind of let you in on a, a personal secret? I've been in ministry for 54 years on a church staff. In the last 35 I've been preaching and teaching the Word of God. But every single Sunday that I get up and I'm going to be preaching that day, I am engulfed in a holy fear. I'm engulfed in a fear. Not that I'm not prepared, because I work hard to pray and prepare. But my fear is that my words would be my words and not the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Because if that were to be the case... I have nothing to give you. I have nothing to offer. It must be the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. And I I say that not just to talk about preachers, but the same thing is true in your witness for Christ. The same dynamic is at work. It is not our words. It is not our skill. It's not even our preparation To be able to be effective in sharing the gospel with others, we need the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. He needs to fill our hearts, and he needs to speak through us. However stumbling and bumbling it might come out, if his power is on it, then it will be effective, and God will bless it. So let me leave you quickly before our prayer and invitation time with, with three, three directives. Here's the first. Never forget that every opportunity you have to share a witness for Christ has eternal significance. You're not selling something that's going to end up on the scrap heap or be thrown away. What you are sharing is something that has eternal significance. Secondly, Remember that it will be the Holy Spirit, not your ability, that will give your words and witness power. 
If you're not a good speaker, don't worry about it. God can handle that. It'll be the power of the Holy Spirit. Number three, as you're going along in your daily life, as you are going, look for divine appointments. God will send people to intersect with your path. Look for those divine appointments to either plant, cultivate, or sometimes even harvest seeds of the gospel. As you are going, make disciples. We want to offer to you a time of prayer and a time of invitation. In just a moment when I pray, uh, some of our deacons and their wives and pastors and their wives will come and be here at the front to pray with you about anything on your heart. doesn't matter. They'll be glad to pray with you. If you're sick and need God's healing, Cindy and I will be here and I'll have the anointing oil to anoint you and pray over you as an elder of the church. But once again, in this prayer and invitation time, if you're here today and God has been tugging on your heart and you know you're not where you need to be with him, and maybe you don't even understand what that next step would be, but you know somehow in your heart you need to take a step toward the Lord, then just come to one of these prayer partners and say, I need to take the next step. And they will know how to talk with you and help you gently and clearly take a step toward Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask you to anoint this time of prayer, this invitation time, if there are those here today who need to come to know the Lord, bring them and help them to have the courage to say, I need to take the next step. And we will give you the honor, the praise, and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand with us. You come if God moves on your heart.